How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the very first episode of The Melting Pot. I am your host, Jeremy. I'm super excited. This will be my very first episode of The Melting Pot. We have a great episode coming for you guys today. My guest star today is Dylan Hunter Olson. He's a great guy. I've known him for a little over almost a year now. So blessed to uh, to have known him. We've made some great connections together. Dylan, how you doing today? Doing great, man. That's good. Yeah, I'm, thank I, you for having me. Absolutely. I'm super excited to have you on the show. Um, so basically, I just want the listeners to to know about your life. I want them to know, take us back to the beginning, you know, take us back from your childhood. So uh, I, I'd say let's just start there. Okay. Well, I was born. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, um, well, I mean, I, you know, it was, I my early years were quite a little bit on the darker side. Um so I guess we'll start with the sob story. <laughs> That's uh, always a good place to start, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the story, the hero's journey. So um, growing up, um, you know, my my dad, I w- was born in uh, Fort Stewart, Georgia. My dad um, was in the military. And my mom and him were very young. and They were teenagers. and uh, But they were both from Idaho Falls. So they moved back to Idaho Falls where family was um, after I was born. And um, childhood you know, continued on until I was six years old or so, or yeah, I was six and, uh, my dad committed suicide and, um, and I really, I mean, I don't really remember much about it. I don't really remember his funeral. Um, but I do remember very vividly that after he died, uh, my grandpa sat me down and said, you, you have to be the man of the family now, not just for your mom and your sister, but for me. And, um, I, you know, that really, that was something I internalized at a very, very young age. And, uh, I had no idea what that was because my only frame of reference <laughs> for being the man of the family just checked out. He just checked out early. And so, um, you know, I, I kind of started uh, closing off as a young child. And then, um, a year later, um, I ended up, I was walking down the street, uh, just being a young kid and these boys, these older boys, that lived down the street from me. I remember the garage was uh, about halfway open. It was dark inside and they kind of peeked out and they were like, Hey, come in here. We want to play a game with you. And, uh, basically ended up molesting me, uh, in this, um, with this game. And this was recurring for about a year. They did it to all the boys, the little boys in the neighborhood. And so, I mean, I was five or six years old, maybe going on seven. And, um, and I had no idea what was going on. To me, it was a game because I was a kid. I was very much in that realm of playful innocence. And um, it wasn't until the parents caught wind that, um, you know, my my grandmother had, uh, my mom was a part of the church at the time, and people in the church had told my mom, well, if, you know, your mother-in-law finds out your kids will get taken away. So when this all came about and my mom said to me, like, you can't tell your grandmother about this. I had no idea this was happening. This is horrible. Just, oh my God, don't tell your grandmother. Because my mom was afraid she was going to lose us. And for me, what I took that as as a child was, don't tell anyone about this. You're disgusting, shameful. You should feel bad about what you did. And I didn't understand And so after this experience, I kind of just created this really hard outer shell around me where I retreated inward into myself. And um, so, you know, life continued on and my mom met another man named Matt and uh, we moved up to Moscow, Idaho. 
and uh, and life was moving along. He was the first man I had accepted as my dad. I was actually calling him dad, and uh, and then he <laughs> he was a biologist. He got in a helicopter crash, and um, the pilot and co-pilot both died, and he was the only one that survived. And he like sat in the snow for like. 24 to like almost two days in the snow, broken pelvis, um, was freezing, had like fire blankets, was shooting flares, finally got rescued, but he had tremendous PTSD to where he started using drugs and alcohol, became emotionally vacant, um, and emotionally abusive. And, um, so then my mom and his marriage tapered and we moved to Boise where we had family for support. And so I was about 10 years old when we moved here and I made friends really fast, but I was, uh, since my image of myself was very low, I surrounded myself with people that validated that from a very young age. So they were my friends, but they treated me like garbage and we got into a lot of trouble. I mean, I remember breaking into a house and, um, stealing things at like the age of 10 or 11 and, um, so we, you know, I continued on through middle school and I was always surrounding myself with, with people that, um, you know, the preps and the jocks and this and that, that I really didn't connect with. And they kind of, I was like the kid that hung out with the popular kids cause I wanted to be cool, but I wasn't, or at least I saw myself as not as such. And I dealt with, um, a lot of bullying in middle school from my friends. I remember there was one time I was, we were out at lunch and, um, my, they had, they held me down in the field and, um, took turns rubbing their ball sweat on my face <laughs> and then shoving grass in my eyes and my ears and my, my mouth. And then the bell rang and they all ran into class and I was just like laying there defeated in the, the field. And, um, and so this like kind of just this sense of inadequacy really just continued on. Um, and I mean, but for the most part I was a good kid. I mean, I wasn't like the best student and I think it's just cause I didn't really care about a lot of that stuff. I was always drawing pictures, writing poetry, um, very much in my head. I was very much in my own world. Uh, and I think that's also why I retreated. I found a huge refuge in video games, particularly RPGs growing up, um, where I would just spend sometimes eight to 10 hours a day when I didn't have anything else to do, just playing video games and investing in this, which you and I have talked about before. Yep, absolutely. And I, yeah. and I think as a kid, you know, going what you went or, you know, going through what you went through, um, you know, getting lost in that, in that other world of, you know, I can be anything I want to be inside of a video game. So I, I do you think that played a, a pretty big role in, in who you are now or what's, uh, how does that relate back to, to what you were going through at the time? Mm. You know, I, you definitely hit the nail on the head with like, I could, you know, in those video games, I could be as heroic and strong. And, um, and there was a sense of liberation, like forge your own path, create your own story. And, um, I felt very trapped in my own life and in myself that I didn't, I didn't really see how applicable that was to real life. And so I just sought, I sought it out only in that. Um, and so I, you know, I, I was like a C B plus or like a, a B or C student, um, went through high school, graduated. I went to a, a medical arts charter. So I, um, 
graduated almost with my EMT basic. I just needed to do my, my written, never did it. But, uh, um, and initially I went to the medical charter cause it was like, well, I went to Eagle high my first, my freshman year and they had drama and they had all this cool stuff, which I loved drama, but I, <laughs> I hated the people at the high school. I hated all the ritzy kids. I hated, and I mean, they were dicks to me too. And I was, I was very depressed at the time too. I was very depressed and very angry, um, which I think is a lot of kids at that age go through that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I chose to go to this medical charter kind of to escape that. And I end up, ended up really, like I didn't know anything about medicine and I really came to love learning about the human body and the essence of healing. Um, and I really found that I, I, I wanted to help people there. I think that's if any, if I can take anything from that experience of going to that high school, it was that I want to help people and I want to learn more about this vessel I'm, I'm driving. And so, and I was, I was Christian uh, of my own accord. Uh, I started going to church when I was like, I mean, we, we went to church as kids, but then my mom stopped going to church. Um, and so I actually continued on by myself uh, with friends and I, um, all through middle school and high school, I eventually worked my way up to being the worship leader of the youth group. And I was doing youth mentorship. Um, and I had no family roots there. So I was just kind of a lone wolf hanging out, you know, like just all in. And uh, I ended up going to NNU after graduation as a nursing major and a vocal performance minor. And, and it was great. Until it wasn't where I, um, I basically just my young adulthood sprung into action and I started, you know, it was cause then use a private Christian university. It was very constricted about these are the things you do. These are what you don't do. This is what's expected of you. Um, and it all just started to really not make sense. Like there were bits of it that didn't make sense before, but it was like really hitting hard. And that was actually also when I started really experimenting with, uh, drugs, um, which I, I mean, I was smoking a lot of weed and, uh, and I had tried Molly for the first time and started going to raves and festivals, uh, started dabbling in psychedelics. And that's when I would say it was a mix of me, like my choosing a different path was also out of a sense of apathy, like drug fueled apathy in a way of where I was like, I don't really care about anything. I just want to party and get high. And, and I had started DJing. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to put my focus into DJing. And I started DJing at a hookah bar in Boise every weekend. And, um, it was called, what was it? Desert cafe. Okay. Desert cafe. And it was dingy. It was a dingy, gross little joint. And, but we partied hard and it was just debaucherous. And, uh, I mean, we were all underage and we were all hammered and high and doing God knows what. Um, and so I did that for a while and I ended up, you know, befriending a bunch of drug dealers. So I was getting high for free. Come to find out a lot of it was bath salts, uh, which <laughs> when you find out you've been, uh, ingesting what you thought was MDMA and it turns out to be bath salts. It was a, uh, I was like, that's why I felt so fucked up and weird. <laughs> can be a little unsettling, I'm sure. So, Oh yeah. So, so let's go back to that for a second. Um, 
So being in that party scene, um, being a DJ, you know, you're kind of the, you know, the, the top dog wherever you're at. Obviously, DJing, they can they control the whole the whole show basically. So in doing that, was it was it helping you at the time kind of escape from what was going on in your life? Mm. Um, you know, I think. Yes, I think in some ways it, it was it was a. Uh, because I always felt lower. I always felt like I was having to prove myself and I was having to add up. I was always having to like prove my worth. So I think really stepping into that role, um, it was a very, it was a very big ego thing. Like it was like, I feel important. It was about, you know, it was very rooted in self-importance, but that self-importance was rooted in self-inadequacy. And, um, and so I continued on this path and, uh, I mean, I met a lot of wonderful people. My buddy, Jeremy, I was telling you about, he, uh, you know, I met him in those days and we're all still friends. And so we were DJing and Elliot as well, Elliot and my buddy, Jeff, who was in cutting cages with me. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> hit the mic. <laughs> uh, and so I met a lot of wonderful friends who, and brothers who I still am in contact with, uh, but it, it just kind of kept going with the DJing for a while. And I was doing parties. Um, and uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll take it back a little bit. So I, I, I ended up dropping out of NNU. Uh, it was a mixture of, no, I got denied enrollment to NNU. Um, that's the, the short of it. I really started breaking the rules uh, that they had in place. And uh, long story short, they, uh, they denied me enrollment. <laughs> So I ended up going to CWI for another few semesters and, um, and then I dropped out and really went full on into the DJing. And so I did that, um, and really, oh man, I, I ended up getting an apartment with some friends and it was like a flop house. I was a busser at Red Robin and we just partied and DJed and I think I was even selling drugs. I think I was selling like weed and acid and stuff and, um, just living that delinquent, debaucherous lifestyle. Um, and so that kept going, and I had a lot of really, you know, I was I was in this place, I actually kind of hit this weird, like I had this idea in my head, like if I push myself close enough to death without dying via drugs, I will have this enlightened moment. And all I ended up doing was like, just deteriorating my health and really scaring the shit out of myself, like the living piss out of myself. Cause I, I mean, there was a time I took a half ounce of mushrooms at once and, um, I did it while I was in a very, very bad mindset and ended up like hearing voices from the sky. Um, well, I, we were out at city of rocks because everyone knows that taking a half ounce of mushrooms and climbing on cliffs is a wonderful idea. So we decided to go out there and do that. And, we get to the city of rocks and it's hitting us. And we're like, dude, we have to leave now. So we hop in the car and my buddy Lucas is driving and he's just flying like 90 miles an hour down this dirt road. I'm seeing ribbons come out of the clouds, like and wrap around me. And we get to the campsite and I like fall out of the car, just rolling in the dirt and writhing in the hot sun. And I just start hearing this voice saying like, just let go, Dylan, let go. Come with us. It'll all be okay. And I was resisting so hard. I was just, 
I'm not ready. I know what's going to happen. I'll leave and I won't come back. And I'm not ready for that. So I was like resisting, resisting. And then my nose just starts bleeding. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm frying. Like I'm literally frying. And, uh, and then the last thing I remember is um, it just looked like God took buckets of neon paint that just washed over everything. And then I blacked out. And, uh, and then I was permafried for like a year kind of thing. Like I, I remember we came back to Boise and I, so we got back to Boise and, uh, I just remember telling my friends, I was like, guys, I can't accept the responsibilities of reality. I'm going into the woods. And they were like, dude, you're malnourished. You're crazy. You're going to die. And I was like, well, this is what I'm doing. So my buddy Forrest was like, well, I'm not letting you die alone. Let's go. So we ended up telling people we were going to minor Lake, which is east we ended up driving north to riggins uh, so no one would have been able to find us and we ended up surviving in the hell's canyon wilderness for um like five days um so what were you gonna say i I was just i was just gonna ask so was that your first experience with with psychedelics when you said you took the mushrooms when you were camping was that your first big experience with with psychedelics no no it was um so up until that point I mean, the first one I had tried was mushrooms and, uh, that was, I was living at, um, my parents' house. It was when my mom was with, uh, her, her third marriage, Ryan. And, um, and, uh, yeah, so we, they were, they were gone and we had, my buddy had some mushrooms and we ended up taking them and I, I didn't really know what to expect. The first time you take psychedelics, it, you don't really know what to look for. So sometimes it can be hard to tune into the feeling. Um, and, but I remember we swam in the pool because we had a pool and uh, I remember diving in and just feeling the water like wash around my body as I'm like, Whoosh! and it was the coolest feeling. And I'm looking at the water as I come out and it was, uh, it was just beautiful. And from there, I really got into acid. I was doing a lot of acid. Um, and then I even tried a lot of the synthetics, so like 2CB, 2CI, 2,5I, um, which two, those are like uh, synthetic analogs of, um, you know, actual psychedelics. Um, and those things just hit you like a ton of bricks there. But they're very chemical, very chemical feeling. Um, so acid and mushrooms, I, I really dove into. Um, and then a couple years later, I tried D, uh, DMT. And I wasn't really ready for that experience I remember showing up at my, my friend's house and they had just all done a ceremony and they all looked a little a little shaken up. And I'm like, what's going on? They're like, you want to blast? You want to blast off, man? And I was like, yeah, sure. And uh, it turned out to be, it was a hell of an experience. It was uh, basically, they, they had it all set up and um, there was, you know, cushions, pillows, the lighting, there was music. And uh, the guy who was administering it to me, it was in a pipe. And he's just like, smoke this. Like, it's the last piece of weed on earth. I'm like, okay. So I just start roasting it. And I take a... And I just held it in. And w- and then I just heard this ringing in my ears. And my vision just... It was got all like particles in like... And I don't even... At that... Like, when it like shut, I, I lost all feeling of my body. I, I don't even remember breathing out. Um, I just, and next thing I knew I was, I was floating around. There were colors and prisms and I was seeing myself 
like from all these different angles and realities of like writhing and expressing like all this pain and emotion and anger and like just all these we like and it creeped me out like I remember looking seeing it and I thought I was looking at myself tripping but then I was like floating through this world of colors and and shapes and uh and there was a part where there was like this city of just color and um, there were all these like shadowy beings. They weren't really detailed. Um, I don't think I made it past the veil, which they say is like you you have that veil, but then when you break through the veil, that's when you actually travel to like other dimensions and you you speak with other entities and beings. Um, so I don't think I bursted beyond the veil, but I, uh, I remember like going through like walking or flying or running, whatever my astral self or that energy self was doing um, through this city and the guy that was administering it said, do you want to go deeper? But what I heard was, do you want to go deeper, deeper, deeper? And I'm like, no, no, I don't. Ah! In my mind. And, but I, I guess I was just passed out. Like, I mean, I was literally out cold for like 60 seconds, but it felt like I was gone for like eight hours. And uh, when I came back, I remember opening my eyes and everything was being like reconstructed with numbers and shapes. And it like first looked like a spaceship, but then it all like came back into, into being, but it was, and I mean, afterwards I was just silent. I just processed it. Um, but I think the lesson I learned from that experience, even though it wasn't, it was terrifying was that your thoughts create reality because in that trip, there was a part where I was going through this city of color and I started thinking like positive thoughts and when that, like, you know, feeling happy, feeling love. And when I did that, I mean, flowers were blooming out of the buildings. Uh, the ch colors changed to more pleasing tones. The music just sounded so euphoric. And then when I thought of negative thoughts, I mean, horns were coming out of things. Blood was dripping. It was dark. The music even became detuned. And um, and so that's that would, I would say that's what I learned from that experience. But I... Of all the, I mean, because I've done, I, I used to, I would say I'm, I like to call my, refer to myself as a, an escape artist, or at least that's what I was, um, where I wasn't addicted to any particular drug. I was addicted to running from myself. I did not want to be with myself. I didn't love myself. So, I mean, alcohol, um, the, the ones, I started off with psychedelics and MDMA and those party drugs, but then I started getting into the drugs where you could do them, but still function. So I really started getting into um, opiates, heroin, coke, um, and and drinking a lot. And um, and that those were the darkest ones. Those were were certainly um, the darkest drugs for me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's let's uh, let's jump forward a little bit. Um, at what point did you realize that that you needed to? you know, to clean yourself up. So what, what, what point in your life did you really start to, to clean yourself up and become who you are now? Mm. Well, so it was a process at 22. Um, I was, I was in this, I had just gotten out of a toxic relationship and, uh, and I was just drinking till blackout constantly. And I, um, I ended up blacking out, taking a cab home, but I passed out in the cab and the cab policy is, well, you have to call the cops if someone passes out drunk in your cab. So he did that, and I ended up committing assault and battery on some police officers. And um, 
it was a miracle. They didn't arrest me. They didn't take me to jail. Um, the one cop that was there, apparently they had known him as being a softy and he, um, the, the other cop that was with him straight, he wanted to throw me in the drunk tank, but the other one, uh, was just like, no, he doesn't need jail. He needs help. So then two days later, I admitted myself into rehab in Gooding at the Walker center and was there for 28 days. And you know, the AA and NA approach didn't really work for me, um, just because I feel like it's a lot of sob stories. I feel like everyone just talks about how shitty their life was, how much they were drinking, instead of like, how have you improved? How have you changed? How has your life transformed? And so it's a lot of dry drunks instead of people living sober lives. It's uh, people that are drunk and they're, or they're people that are sober, but they're not happy about it. They're still miserable. They're just not drinking. And that didn't appeal to me. So while I was in rehab, though, I had this counselor named Buck. And he was this old biker dude. Like, I think he used to, like, pedal meth. Like, used to be super hard. But now he's this soft, just beautiful man. And uh, and so I was sitting in his office talking with him one day. And he um, he was like, you know, you're, you're, you're different. I think I have a book that you'll really like. And he gave me this book. And it was called uh, The Untethered Soul, A Journey Beyond the Self by Michael A. Singer. And it, that just, that cracked me open. Um and it really just opened me up to consciousness, spirituality, being with yourself, reprogramming yourself. And so from there, I really started opening up to, I mean, I think soon after that, I got into meditation. Uh, I started reading a lot more literature, spiritual literature, uh, stuff about consciousness and growth. But I was in denial still because I was like, well, I can still, no, I can balance this lifestyle and still be this way. So I continued on. Um, but I would say, to answer your question, as we move forward, I ended up meeting um, a woman and uh, just fell absolutely head over heels in love. I had never felt that way. Like, uh, we met at a festival, and uh, she, she was a traveler, so she didn't have a phone number. She had a Facebook and an email. So come to the end of the festival, I was like, I just have to get to know you. Like, how do I stay in touch with you? She's like, oh, well, you can, like, email me. Or add me on Facebook. I'm like, what? Okay, well, I'll do what I have to do. So we, we kept talking. And um, she was living in Seattle for a little bit, but she moved back to Boise. And then we started seeing each other. Well, she ended up traveling to Ecuador. And I was like, well, at first I was like, well, maybe we should cut this off early then, you know, and save us both the, the heartache. And she was like, well, I would really rather not. I want, I want to do this with you. So I was like, okay. Well, I've always wanted to be more of a romantic. So I... Um, quit my jobs. I was doing medical billing for my mom and I was, um, working at a restaurant. So I quit those jobs and I, um, moved to Northern California and Mammoth Lakes in the middle of winter and shoveled snow off of rooftops. Uh, we ended up having like an eight man crew at first. By the end, it was just me. And I was just out there every day working 50 hours a week, shoveling snow. I mean, there was like 11 to 15 feet of snow on these rooftops. And, um, I did that for a month and a half, saved up enough money to pay off some debt and some bills. And then, uh, bought a one-way ticket to Colombia, and I flew down. And so then we traveled through Colombia for a month, ended up living in Iquitos, Peru, uh, for three months. And it was wonderful. It was fantastic. 
but my, you know, it doesn't matter where you go, your unhappiness, your patterns will follow you. And so my, I, the Coke down there was super cheap <laughs> and I wanted to try it. And once I tried it and I found out how cheap it was, it was game over. I, um, what started off as a little bag here and there when I could find it came to like, I found a dealer in Iquitos and I would like walk to his shop and it became a regular thing where I'd go and buy an eight ball. And I always had an eight ball in my fanny pack. And, um, and so by the end, um, had this, there was things had gotten really bad. I had become really distant. I was drinking this really dark side of me was coming out, uh, just drinking and doing a lot of blow all the time. There were nights where I was just staying out. I remember there was one night I was with these people. I didn't even know people that didn't even really speak all that much English. And we were down on a dock in this dilapidated shack by the Amazon river looking out and the, like we were out all night playing guitar and singing and doing blow and the sun is coming up and Natasha was at home and I'm just out like tears in my eyes. Like I didn't know I was just, I felt so lost. I felt so broken. Um, and I felt inadequate as a man too, cause I wasn't showing up for her. And I, but then I just felt, it was like this feeling of just power. Like I, I knew what I wanted to do, like who I wanted to be, but I didn't, I didn't have the balls to just do it. And there was one day where I was at this cafe and I was drinking and she ends up showing up at the cafe and she was very distraught uh, because these, this kind of hurt, this pack of men had, um, had been catcalling her and violating her boundaries, trying to touch her. And I wasn't there to protect her. And she's telling me this and she's super scared and emotional. And I remember just seeing her that way. And it just, it, I, I just felt so inadequate. I felt just like not a man at all. And she was like, do you want to, are you going to come back to the apartment with me? And I just was like, I, I don't know. I, I literally just wanted to curl up and die right there. So I stayed out drinking and I ended up uh, going to, I, at the end of the night, one, one of the friends I was with was like, you should go home. Like, you you need to go home. I was like, I'm going to go to the river. I just wanted to go think and write. So I start walking towards the river, and I get approached by a prostitute. And I just, you know, she basically ended up, I hop in this tuk-tuk with her, and we go to the seedy hotel. And we end up at this this hotel, and I paid her before I paid her before anything happened, and then uh, push comes to shove, and she just ends up leaving the room with my cash, and nothing happens. Um, and it was a blessing in disguise. Uh, and um, but I just remember after she had left, and I realized everything that had happened. I'm standing there in this hotel room alone with no money. <laughs> in a part of town, I have no idea where I'm at. And I just like felt, I was like, what the fuck am I doing? So I go back to our apartment and, uh, and Natasha was waiting up for me. Um, and so I basically the, the, she threw the keys at me, but the gate for the apartment complex, you need them not only to get in, but also to get out. So now they're in the street and I'm inside the gate. So I had to stack up a table and like a stool 
to get on top of this like nine or 10 foot gate and jump into the street to go get the keys. Well, I was still hammered. So when I got on top of the gate, I slipped off and landed on my heels barefooted and basically broke both my feet. Um, And so then I get inside the house and I had mentioned to her a few days prior that I was feeling suicidal. So she, um, she hid the knives in the house and she locked me out of our room. Um, And which I do not blame her in the slightest. And she, um, so I was sleeping in or trying to sleep in the other room, which had no pillows, no blankets. It was cold. I was coming down and I just remember feeling so defeated. I felt like just, less than a man, less than a human. I I just felt like there was no reason for me to go on because I just couldn't do anything right. I couldn't even be the person that I wanted to be. So I, um, I wrote a suicide note and I, at this point, my feet were throbbing like up into my calves and my knees, my thighs. Like it was just so much pain. And so I crawled and dragged a stool into the bathroom and uh, the, the windows had bars, so I, um, I tied the belt to the bars and around my neck, and I stood on the stool, and I was like, all right, I just have to tip it. I literally just have to kick the stool, and this will all be over. And I just stood there in this moment, um, tears just streaming down my face, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I, um, I ended up climbing down from it and just laying by myself. Um, Ended up coming home uh, like a week or two later from uh, South America. And so after that experience, I really, that really sparked the authentic masculine, um, which was where I never want to make those decisions again. I never want to be that person again. I never want to destroy my relationships like I did with that ever again. Like that was so painful. I would never wish that on anyone. So... When I came back, I really, I didn't get sober, but I started really diving into the work. I started really diving into the authentic masculine and developing this program and, and doing the work that I had done with, with other programs or another program in the past. And so that, that went on for a bit and it eventually fizzled again um, because it just, you know, some people lost interest and I lost interest and it just, and I, and you know, the, what wasn't there was the discipline and the practice. I wasn't actually practicing. I wasn't walking the walk. And that was, what was that? 2017, 2016, 17. Uh, and so then I came back and I was um, living uh, at my mom's and uh, kind of just continued on. I uh, had an entertainment company um, we were doing weddings and karaoke and I was DJing a lot and, and then I got in another relationship and that one was also toxic. Um, and that was actually the one where things flipped. And this was a little over a year ago where, um, basically, uh, things were just getting worse and worse. We were both kind of getting more distant. I was unhappy or we enabled each other in our drug abuse and our partying. And uh, she ended up going on uh, a trip to Vegas for like five days. And I didn't really hear from her. And she was with a group of dudes. So naturally it felt really secure. I felt just so really good. (laughs) Uh, And 
Um, so in my infinite maturity as a man, I decided to drink and do a bunch of blow and the opportunity came to sleep with someone else. And I did, uh, and at first I was like, you know what my, my, and oh, you know, there was all sorts of emotions, but what it came down to was I really regretted what I did. So then I was like, okay, well I can either do what I've done before and lie and try to preserve whatever semblance of a relationship this is. Or I can tell the truth for myself. I can have integrity for no one else but me. And I chose that. So when she came back, I, I sat her down and I told the truth. And I think that was a really big turning point for me was when I sat down and chose to do that. And on top of that, um, I also, that's when I decided to get sober. I had talked with um, my mom's partner and he was like, you know, if you don't mind me sharing with you what I see, uh, it's the drugs and the alcohol. It's this lifestyle you're living that's really doing you in. And at first, you know, I was kind of like, yeah, no, I understand, man. I feel you. And, but it stuck with me for a few days. And then it just, it just clicked. Just something shifted inside of me. And I was like, no, I'm, I have to be done. This is over. And, um, and so that was when I really just committed. And I just was like, I'm done with that lifestyle. I'm done with anyone who, enables me in those patterns I'm done with you know and I'm gonna detach from who I believe I am I'm gonna disidentify from all of these patterns and uh, my past and my narrative and my story and I'm just gonna let all of that go and allow who I am in this present moment to flourish and blossom and come into being so I started um started taking care of my body I started eating right I started sleeping uh I wasn't doing drugs or alcohol and uh started exercising and things just really once it was like once I made that choice, it was like the universe just unlocked to me. Um, and so, oh, and I, I did I got a DUI around that same time with the the breakup. Um, so that was a catalyst. I would say those things were the the catalyst. Those were the things that pushed me, pushed me off the edge and and beckoned me to fly. And um, yeah. So since then, it's just been one miracle after another. Uh, soon after I was getting sober, about five or six months in, it was a uh, quarantine hit. COVID really hit. So then it was just in my room, just really. And, you know, even going into that experience, I saw a lot of people being like, oh, you know, getting the stimulus, you know, like what is kind of treating it almost like a vacation, like a like a fear stricken vacation. Like we're totally afraid, but this is vacation. <laughs> And I was like, I'm not going to do that. I, you know, if we're, if I'm going to be not doing work, like I'm really going to look at myself. I'm really going to take this time to re rework my footing and figure out how I'm going to project from here forward. And so I just, you know, really started, I continued doing the work, doing a lot of reading, started writing a book um, called the, and I, I, the name is the quarantine chronicles a transformative dialogue of when the world slowed down and I'm still working on it. Um, and it's more of like a, like a journal memoir. So it's like, I mean, I talk about my day to day, which there's actually quite a bit of interesting stuff in there. I can have, <laughs> I have a pretty interesting life on a daily basis sometimes. And, uh, but then it's also, you know, a mix of like philosophy and um, spiritual text as well, where I, I share my, my views on metaphysics and spirituality and humanity um, and so started doing that. And, uh, as 
quarantine started to lift, I ended up getting a um, awesome, I got, I ended up getting a message from, um, well, so in quarantine, I started colorblind with Dwayne, uh, Dwayne Rainwater. And we, uh, and that's, uh, he's been doing hip hop production for quite some time. And I've been doing my stuff as lover. And um, colorblind was like our, our collaboration hip hop project. And so we actually came up with like a full album, but we, we, we're still producing it. We're still, we still need to release it all. Um, but that was, you know, staying productive. And then I received a message from my friend, Lisa Berry, and she, um, who is, she has a show or shows on, um, Ohm times radio. And she reached out to me. We had actually done the one soul expo, which was a spiritual expo here in Boise. And I was a keynote speaker and she had reached out to me saying she had this opportunity and it was for, um, the International Academy of Universal Self Mastery, and uh, and it's funny about that. As soon a little bit before, I remember driving in the car with my mom, and she was like, uh, I, "I was just like, I want to, I want to help people in this way, but I don't necessarily want to go back and get a degree in psychology and be a counselor or a therapist." And I was like, "And I want to do," so it's like, so that's not it. I was like, I could also just put it all into my music, but that's also not entirely it either. It's some, there's something I can't put my finger on, but I know what I want. I know what I want to do. And then I awesome showed up and that really opened up the door. I just unlocked with that. And initially I was invited as a founding faculty member to teach the authentic masculine. And I'm also going to be teaching a class on sobriety as well as one that I'll probably call, um, radical or radically human which will be about just like radicals these radical concepts to transform your life um but i rapidly became i got on the council because i was like well i'm a writer if you guys need press releases written i would love to do that just because i believe in this so i wrote press releases and they were like whatever comes out of you the way you have with words is magic we want to work more with you so now i'm on the council for that um and since then, it's just been just more and more miracles. Just the more I open up to that and keep doing the inner work, it just seems to keep flooding in. That's awesome, man. Well, so, so, so thank you for, you know, for sharing your story with us and, you know, letting listeners know that, you know, there's, there's always hope out there. You know, it sounds like you've, you've been through hell and high water <laughs> yeah, to, to say the least. And no, you're not, you're now this flourishing human. That's just, and like you said, you know, there's been so much opportunity for you lately. Um, so, so, so let's, uh, let's jump into your music a little bit. Yeah. Um, tell us about Lover. Uh, so Lover is, I mean, I've gone through a lot of different branding. Um, I was in a rock band back when I was, I mean, this was eight years ago, eight, eight or nine years ago is when it started, uh, cutting cages and it was, uh, and, uh, we, we had that project for like five years and then I really just started going into my solo stuff, which at first I was like, just, I think I was Dylan Hunter was my, my stage name. And then I turned it into the warfare, which was war and then F-A-I-R. So like conflict on display. Um, Cause I felt that was very much what was going on inside of me. So after my resurgence with sobriety and reinventing myself, um, I really was like, you know, that doesn't apply anymore. I want to, and I, and I love Prince, so I wanted a one-word name. And I was thinking about it, 
and I was like, you know, I, I am one loving ass motherfucker. So <clears throat> I, um, I just decided to go, but then, you know, lover, there's all sorts of artists out there named lover. So I had to make it original. So I put a period at the end of it. Um, so yeah, lover, uh, lover with a period at the end. That's, uh, I just decided on that and stuck with it. And, um, yeah, that's been, I'm, I'm working on a lot of stuff right now, uh, which I'm still debating if I want to do, I mean, I love albums, but I know that also 2020 is an age of singles and EPs. So albums are kind of, but in that way also with albums being somewhat of a lost art, I want to do an album just because of that. Um, I have, I've always liked doing things that no one else does. Like I've never really been a friend. I, I feel like I've been more of a trend setter than a trend follower. I've never been one to really jump on the bandwagon. I'm always the one that'll kind of, I like to do my own thing. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that's lover right now. There's a lot in the works. Um, yeah. And I mean, you, I mean, you're, you're now doing, we can talk about that. You're actually now doing percussion for lover and, and getting involved. So yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm super excited to see where that takes us in, in this new year. I mean, in 2021 now, I mean, it's, it's weird to say 2021. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely didn't think I'd make it this far, but, uh, no, that's, that's cool. I'm definitely excited to, to see where lover takes us and, you know, it takes you as a person and, um, where can, uh, where can people find your, your music at? So it is, it is available on it, basically all the platforms. I mean, you can even, you can tag it in your Instagram videos with the music, uh, widget and, um, I mean, Spotify, Apple music, Google play, all that stuff. It's there. And, um, I don't believe I don't have a SoundCloud for lover, just, uh, just that, but, um, yeah, and so they can find that. If you guys want to find other uh, other stuff of mine, there's also uh, Cutting Cages, which is on Spotify and SoundCloud. Um, there's also um, Yoni Oso, which is Y-O-N-I-O-S-O, and that's on SoundCloud, um, as well as Wild, W-I-L-E, all capitals, and uh, there's a song on there called Pedals. But those are all different uh you know, different projects, different works, but, um, lover will definitely be the one to keep your eye on as that will be the one that's getting, getting updated. And that's cool. And so aside from your music, um, where else can people find your, you know, your masculine, your masculine work, your, your teachings, um, where can they find that? And, um, what can they look forward to here in the, in the near future? Ooh, well, um, so, with the the authentic masculine, uh, so right now I actually am revamping the authentic brotherhood, which um, is on Facebook. So for those of you that have Facebook, you can um, add me at uh, I think it's just at Dylan Hunter Olson. I'm sure is my tag on Facebook, um, and uh, or DM me and uh, and let me know you're interested in it. And uh, basically what that is, is with the Authentic Brotherhood Circles, I'll be hosting those probably once a month um, via Zoom so we can tune in from anywhere. But that is, the idea with that is um, men men are quite, we, we've lost our way a bit. And this is a way for men to develop a deeper sense of intimacy and connection with brothers. And uh, what that does is that creates creates a whole new layer of depth for us to approach our lives with 
and we can become more potent lovers, partners, friends, brothers, husbands. Uh, we can become more potent and present in our business dealings. Um, we have a greater capacity for learning, a greater capacity for love. Um, and so it really is just, I mean, imagine it like learning, you know, we're learning to be Jedi masters, but instead of the force, it's in, uh, it's in self-awareness. So, uh, but yeah, Facebook also, um, I awesome, I a U S M.com. Uh, it is a new platform that actually Jeremy and I are a part of building. Uh, and it's a global online learning platform meets social media community. So with that, you can, um, basically most of the, the, uh, online learning platforms, it's just you in a course, you just watch your course videos and then you're done. There's no way for you to interact with the instructor or other students who are taking the course. So what this does is it takes that component and puts it in there. So there's groups for each course and I'm, it's all holistic based too. So, I mean, you're learning Reiki, um, about food, herbs, and oils. There's even stuff with Wicca. There's stuff with meditation, mindfulness, chakras, yoga. It's, um, and so there really is something for everyone and there's, and you get to choose your instructors beforehand. Like you get to go through and see who you want to learn from, which is the cool part as well. So, um, I will be hosting my authentic masculine program on there as well as a course on sobriety where I teach you my process for getting sober and keeping it and create not only just stay being sober in the sense of not drinking, but taking sobriety and using it in a way that transforms your life. And so I will be teaching my methods um, on there. That'll be the, the best place to find them. Um, but otherwise, Facebook, uh, feel free to add me on uh, Facebook or Instagram. My Instagram handle is at Debo Shimmy Pimp, which is D-E-B-O Shimmy Pimp. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to connect with you guys. So if you want to learn more about any of these things, um, love to hear from you. That's super cool. So make sure to go check him out, guys. Um, he, he's going to have some amazing content coming up here in the next year. Um, I want to close with, you know, obviously in this time of, of, of the pandemic and everything that's going on in the world with politics, um, if you could say one thing to, to people listening just about, you know, keeping their hopes high, what would, uh, what would that be? Mm. All right. So it's really easy to get caught up in the fear of everything right now. And I mean, that's because people tell you, you should be afraid. The TV tells you, you should be afraid. Social media is just gleaming with all sorts of memes and, and stuff, um, which are, you know, a lot of them are trying to make light of situations. But what I would say is, you know, people say it's the end of the world and they're right. It's the end of the old world. It's the end of the world that doesn't serve us anymore. And so I would say if it, more than anything, reframe the way that you're perceiving. This is an opportunity for all of us to really see ourselves and see the world in a new way because up until now we have believed that the world is an ugly and dangerous place. But if we didn't believe that and we chose to see the world differently and see ourselves differently and push forward differently, because um, there really is nothing to fear. I mean, since when have we been... I mean, we've been getting sick our whole lives since we were children. And we've never, ever been this scared. <laughs> and so it's, it's kind of, you know, and then all of a sudden it's, you know, almost feels like the Third Reich in some ways where it's like 
now you have to shame people are shaming and guilting each other they're ratting people out and it's like dude what the what the fuck if pardon my fucking french but what the fuck and uh just there's not really nothing to fear like and another thing to be aware of too is and y'all can think how this is foo foo or woo woo bullshit all you want but frequencies are real and pathogens operate on certain frequencies so if you are living in a state of fear and anxiety and worry and anger and jealousy and possessiveness, you are going to be on a lower vibration. And when you're on a lower vibration, guess what you allow into your system? Pathogens that offer off, that operate on a lower vibration. You are going to get sick more often. Whereas if you live in a state of gratitude, a state of inner peace, a state of self-acceptance and a state of love, um, and you really are living out of that place of personal power, you are going to, now, it's not that you're never going to get sick. You will get sick. You know why? You know how I know? Because you're human, you dingus. Because you're fucking human. You're living on this planet. So, yes, we are still going to get sick. But you won't be afraid of it anymore. You won't be afraid of sickness. And so I would say there is nothing to fear. Don't let fear cripple you. Don't let it cripple your immune system. Don't let it cripple your happiness. And be in a state of love. Be grateful. Because we're seeing... The world is evolving and we are at the forefront of one of the most massive shifts in human consciousness in the history of mankind. So I would say, and I'm usually not one for hopping on the bandwagon, but hop on the bandwagon, people. It's a beautiful one. It's a beautiful ride. Come hang out at iAwesome. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, let's uh, let's expand some consciousness. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for, you know, uh, coming on here and, and just uh, indulging in your in your life. And, you know, I, I just I, I can't thank you enough for everything you've done for me, um, everything you've done for this podcast. Um, you know, you, you've helped a ton behind the scenes. I'm super thankful for you. Um, yeah. So definitely thank you for uh, for, for, for coming on my first episode. All right, guys, I think that's it. Um, great episode. Um, check this um, podcast out. You'll find it on Anchor. Uh, you can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts at The Melting Pot. Um, you'll you'll see my my logo on there um, yeah go check it out and uh, we will catch you guys on the next episode of the melting pot <laughs>